So good morning, everyone. Welcome back from spring break. Those of you that got to go on spring break, congratulations. Those of you that are bitter about it, we're moving on, so <laughs> that's good. But um, a lot of times we take road trips on spring break. Does anybody remember the good old spring break road trips? So some people, they take road trips to the mountains, and they'll, they'll take selfies in front of the snow-covered lodge, and then some people will drive to the lake, and they'll say, can I borrow your fish for just one minute? And they'll take a picture of their fish. <laughs> Then they're hitting the road. Some people, they go to the park and they go biking or hiking. And we just take all these wonderful road trips. And then some people, they go to the beach. Yes. And they take pictures of both of their perfect little feet just buried in the sand <laughs> with all 10 of their beautiful little toes just working, you know, just working perfectly. But I'm not really bitter about any of that. <laughs> What was I even talking? Well, back to road trips. So, uh, because oftentimes road trips they have we were driving little moments that become the most memorable for us. So one time Katie and I we were driving to Colorado, and our Tom Tom. Does anybody remember Tom Tom? Tom Tom, not shoes. Tom Tom was like a Google Maps box that you stuck on your windshield. And then when you needed Tom Tom the most, the suction cups would fail and you'd just be lost forever. But our Tom Tom <laughs> took us down this gravel road. And I was like, oh my gosh, a shortcut to Colorado? Yes! So our Tom, but because we believe, we believed our Tom Tom, that we believed that had the best interest of our trip. In its heart, we knew that Tom Tom wanted the best for us. And so we drove for miles down this gravel road, and then all of a sudden we stopped at this gate that said, no trespassing. <laughs> and we had to turn around and figure out how to get back on track all by ourselves. Thanks for nothing, Tom Tom. That's why you didn't make it. Anyway, but for most of us, there are times in our trips where we have to stop, in our journeys where we have to stop and get back on track. And these times that we got to stop and turn around and get back on track become the most memorable parts of our journey. And so many of you have been reading through Year of the Bible about what I like to call the worst road trip in the history of all road trips, and that is the Israelites' trip to the promised land in Numbers. I mean, put this map up there. So there are shorter ways to get to to Jerusalem, modern-day Jerusalem now, from Goshen Ramses. That would be where Egypt is. And Israelites, they could have just followed this blue line straight to the promised land. But God, God brings them way down here to Mount Sinai, 200 miles out of the way. And that's a bad enough trip if you're, on, if you're driving. But, I mean, if you're walking, you're low on food and you're low on water, this really, this trip just to Mount Sinai has the ability to test people's everything that they have inside them. And you would think that if God knew the terrain, that, that if God you know, could part the Red Sea, I mean, God could just take them on this painless route straight to the promised land where they could have started gorging themselves on milk and honey, right? I don't know why I rub my belly when I think, but just like Winnie the Pooh. You know? So, but why? Why would God do this? Why would God make them follow all this red when he could just take them on this little blue line straight to the promised land? And then I got this question for you to kind of think about while you're driving home tonight uh, this morning. Do you ever think God ever becomes weary with how often we question his itinerary for our lives. So a little backstory: the, the journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai, where the law was given, down here in the bottom of the peninsula, took about three months for them to get there. Then it's going to take them about two years 
They're going to travel up the side there until they get to their first chance to enter into the promised land. So the Israelites, they arrive at Mount Sinai in Exodus 14. Then in Exodus 19, they're going to hang out at the foot of Mount Sinai um, for about two years. They're going to get the laws at Mount Sinai. Remember that? The Levitical laws. They're going to get instructions for how to build the tabernacle. And they're actually going to build the tabernacle. And God is slowly bringing order to this Israelite camp that's kind of in chaos most of the time, it seems like. And then in Numbers 10, 11 through 13, the people set out towards the promised land. And so that's where we pick up our reading for today. It says, on the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law. The Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out there this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. And so continues what I like to call the worst road trip in the history of all road trips. It was the Israelites' trip to the promised land under the leadership of Moses and the guidance of God, which is way better than any tom-tom in the Colorado wilderness, let me tell you. And almost immediately, the Israelites, they, they start acting like a bunch of kids. They really do. Like a bunch, they start complaining that they're hungry. They want to find a Whataburger. They're like, we want some meat, God. We really do. We want some meat. And so in Numbers 11, 5 through 6, they say this. They say, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. I can't. Not even these words came out of their mouth. Also, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. So the manna had become old hat to the Israelites. Can you imagine the first time they were really hungry and manna fell from the sky? How, how thankful they were that morning. How they loved, man, just they were in the presence of God and they were just so thankful. And now this miracle had become old hat to them. The, the power of grace, of God's grace and provision every morning that God provided for them every morning was meaningless to them. Meaningless. But I'm really glad I'm not like that. I'm glad I don't take for granted God's provision in my life and in my family's life every single day. I'm really glad that I never complain or grumble. We'll just move on. And so God is almost like an angry dad on a horrible road trip at this moment because he's gotten the proverbial minivan up to speed, you know. He's got the cruise control set at just the right speed, just, you know, fast enough to make good time. That's important. But he's slow enough so as not to get pulled over. He's got his arm in the right spot. And everything's just going good. He's got the radio station set. And then the kids. It's always the kids. They start complaining. I need the potty. Can somebody get me a porta potty off the camel? I, I need to go. Like, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Are we there yet? I'm so hungry, God. I want some meat. And so God says on this horrible road trip, fine. He goes, I've had enough of this moaning and whining and complaining. And God, and God says, I see a Whataburger right down the road and you're going to get some meat. Right here, Numbers 11, 18 through 20, it says this. God says, tell the people to consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not just eat it for one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days. You're going to eat this meat for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils. <laughs> 
This is like a dad. And you're going to loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? So basically the Israelites are saying to God, God, my life would have been better if I'd never followed you. God, my life was better when I was a slave. God, all you ever give me is this manna. God, all you ever give me is your provision. We were so much better off in Egypt. And so Moses shares God's message with the people, and then God sends me quail, actually. There are so many quail that the Bible says that the least gathered 10 homers. This isn't the Simpsons. That the least gathered 10 homers apiece. So that's almost 3,000 pounds of quail. While they were still chewing on the meat that God sends a plague and the people who had grumbled and whined and moaned and complained, they died. And they named that place on their road trip, Kabroth Hatavah, also known as the Graves of Lust, because there they buried people that craved something other than what God had provided for them. The Israelites, they have several other horrible road trip moments. There's earthquakes and there's fires and there's all kinds of craziness breaks out. But they finally make it to Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran to the south of Canaan. And in Numbers 13, they finally get to send the 12 spies into the promised land. And the 12 spies, they're gone for 40 days. And then the 12 spies return and they have this to say. Numbers 13.30, this is Caleb and Joshua's report. They said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. This is Caleb and Joshua. And then the other 10 spies, they oppose this argument with an amazing argument because we have to remember that these are the people that had seen all these miracles in Egypt. These are the people the Bible says they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. These are the people who had been eating manna from the mouth of God for almost two years. These are the people that had been following God in the form of a cloud over the tabernacle of me for almost two years. Every time the cloud moved, they moved for almost two years. And then in Numbers 13, 31, they say this, we are not able to go, go up against the people for they are stronger than we. They had taken a peek at God's plan. They looked at what they were lacking and they decided that they couldn't do what God had called them to do. So my guess is at this point is that Caleb and Joshua, they looked at Moses and like, what is going on here? And they looked at the other 10 spies like, what are you thinking? They looked at all the people and then they did the first ever patented wrestler move. And the scripture says that they tore their, car their garments and they said, we can do this. We have God on our side. I pity the fool that tries to stop us from going into the promised land. <laughs> Just in case you think I made that up, listen to Numbers 14, five through nine. <laughs> Some of it might be made up, who knows. But then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephina, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said, the, and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of that land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. 
Do not be afraid of them. So in Numbers 14, the Israelites, they prove that two years of wandering in the wilderness with God was not enough to teach them to rely on God, only God. It was not enough to teach them to soften their hearts enough so that they could follow God. And so they continually rebel against Moses. They continually rebel against God. They continually look at what they lack and at their circumstances. But Caleb and Joshua, they're different. They don't look at what they lack. They don't look at their circumstances. They look at at what, what is with them. That's God with them. They look at the source of their power and provision, and that is God with them. So all the Israelites, except for Joshua and Caleb, are not allowed to enter the promised land God says, if two years of wandering in the wilderness with me and seeing all these miracles doesn't put your trust in me, then God says, fine. Just wander in the wilderness for 40 more years. And so it was God's judgment that the Israelites would wander in the wilderness for 40 more years. But God also showed them loving mercy as he fed them and took care of them and lovingly cared for them every day and provided manna for them every single day. And this amazing and just and holy God, he waited until that rebellious and doubting generation died out. And this is what the rest of the book of Numbers is all about. And it's a hard lesson, man. It's a really hard lesson for them to learn. And it's a hard lesson for us to learn because we try and put our emotions and our human standards and our human desires on God's judgment. But listen to what God says to the children of the Israelites that wandered in the desert with their parents for 40 years in Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 5. It says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you. And test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. To teach you, remember this part, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is just an added bonus. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell. You know then that in your heart that as a man disciplines his own son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So by all accounts, the Israelites, they really did have a horrible road trip. What should have taken them three months to get to the promised land took them about 40 years of wandering through the wilderness. And the Israelites, they wandered through the desert mainly because of their rebellion against God But the good that God aimed to do through the wilderness was to make these people intensely and deeply and lastingly conscious of their total dependence on God. God uses the wilderness to draw his people to him. God uses the wilderness to care for these people. God uses the wilderness to shape these people. And God uses the wilderness to ingrain in these people their true identity as God's children. And again, just like last week and just like we've seen over and over again through this year of the Bible, we see this theme of God being fully love and of God being fully judgment. God provides for the Israelites through loving mercy 
And then God judges the hearts of the Israelites as well. And that doesn't make God bad or evil or wrong. It just makes him holy. It just makes him God. It means that the creator gets to decide how he will handle his creation. And so we've been reading about this as well in Matthew and Mark and then just past these past few weeks in Luke about how Jesus spent time in the wilderness. God even led his own son into the wilderness for 40 days. One day for every year, the Israelites wandered in the desert, and that's because Jesus learns exponentially faster than the Israelites did. But being called into the wilderness was not a punishment to Jesus, and we need to remember this today. It's not a punishment to be in the wilderness. God doesn't have something against you or against his people for them wandering in the wilderness. So God must think there's something good for us in the wilderness. God must think there's something of value for us to learn in the wilderness. Because everything that God is a part of has a purpose. Everything that God is a part of is good. So let's read Matthew 4.1 and see what the good purpose is that God has for us. Matthew 4.1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit. So he was led by God's Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil And when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, Jesus quotes scripture from Deuteronomy, the words that we just read. And these are also the words that Moses says to the people that were in the wilderness about their testing and their time of testing in the wilderness. And I love how through this year we've seen how year of the Bible just makes these complete perfect circles over and over again. How the Bible just keeps proving itself over and over again. And then in Matthew 4, 3 through 4, it says this. It says, the tempter came and said to him, said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said this. He said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So in other words, the tempter, the devil, he says to Jesus, go ahead, Jesus, do the manna thing. Go ahead, Jesus, make manna like God did in the wilderness. Go ahead, Jesus, make some miracle bread. Go ahead, Jesus, slice off some wonder bread. And Jesus says, yes, God did give the people manna from heaven in the wilderness. And God did this so that the people would learn to live on every word That comes from the mouth of God. Because manna is one of the only incredible ways that God can in an instant and through a mere word change your circumstances and bring hope when everything else in your life looks hopeless. But here's the point. Don't trust in bread, not even miracle bread, not even delicious wonder bread. Trust in God. Don't trust in the provision. Trust in the provider. Don't get your deepest satisfaction from anything else in this world but from God. Every word that comes from the mouth of God reveals God. And it is this self-revelation that we as believers feed on. And most of the time that's through God's word, the Bible. Amen? So here's the truth. The prosperity of the promised land is way more dangerous to our souls than the dangers in the wilderness will ever be. The prosperity of the promised land is way more dangerous to our souls than the dangers in the wilderness will ever be. Because if we put our faith in the promised land and what the promised land has to offer us, it, builds, it breeds self-sufficiency and it breeds pride. We become tempted to believe, man, I earned all of this. We become tempted to believe, 
I deserve all of this. We become tempted to believe I am entitled to anything and everything I want. And that promised land mentality has the potential to destroy people's faith at a much faster rate than the wilderness ever could. Because in the wilderness, man, we're dependent upon God to lead us. And the wilderness reveals our brokenness. The wilderness reveals our imperfections. But the wilderness also leads us to know God as our Father, just like it did for the Israelites. The wilderness solidified Jesus' identity as God, as his Father in the wilderness, just as it did for him as he traveled through the wilderness. And there are times, you know, we feel like we're ready. We're ready for the promised land. There are times we're like, man, I'm so ready, God, to see your purpose fulfilled. I'm ready, God. I'm ready to embrace it. I can just see it. I'm ready, God. And all the while, we kind of look over our shoulders and everybody else's journey. And we kind of start comparing our journey with theirs. And we think, man. My road trip, it should be like nearing the end of its destination by now, God. It really should. We find ourselves still wandering in the wilderness. We find ourselves asking this question, like, why am I still at this job? Why am I still driving this old car? Why she get married before me? Why am I worried about what my ex is doing? Why am I still battling this addiction? Why, 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 why? And that's when we have to remind ourselves that the wilderness is not a punishment. The wilderness is God's work in you. The wilderness is God's process of preparing you for the fulfillment of his purpose. The wilderness is God's process of preparing you for the fulfillment of his purpose. God, he prepared the Israelites in the wilderness by confronting the rebellion. If you're a rebellion, you know, and God made them holy also in the wilderness. God gave them an identity as his children. God also affirmed Jesus's identity in the wilderness. If you're in the wilderness, God is using this time to prepare you, but you have to choose how you will respond. You have to choose. Today is your chance. You get to choose how you're going to respond. Will you complain and grumble and whine and moan and compare? Or will you let the Spirit of God lead you? Will you let God's love surround you? Will you let God care for you and bring hope into your hopeless situation? Will you let God lead you? Will you look for ways to promote yourself to the promised land? Or will you trust God and his purpose and his timing and his will for your life? Will you trust that God has a good and perfect plan for you and for your life? Because here it is. If you believe in Jesus, your destination is already set today. It really is. If you believe in Jesus, your destination is already set. And now it's time to make this journey count. It's time to make this journey count. Like I said in the beginning, Katie and I, we got lost in Colorado because we put our faith in TomTom. We listened to a voice without checking to see if it was speaking truth to us. And we all have these moments on our journey where pride or or somebody else's mistakes or or maybe a voice kind of gets us off track and then all of a sudden we're in the wilderness on a gravel road. But today, this is your chance to turn around. This is your chance to get back on track. This is your chance to have your Carrie Underwood moment Jesus, take the wheel. This week, take it from my hand. Yes. That's right. No, this week, this week, before you go to work or when you're sitting alone in your car, 
Take your hands off and say, Jesus, but make sure you're parked. But Jesus, take the wheel. This is your chance to have your Carrie Underwood moment. It can start today. There's only one car in that whole parking lot without a steering wheel on it. You're all safe. Okay? But seriously, this is your chance to refocus, to turn around, and to get back on track. And to trust that God desires to guide you to your greatest life. This is your chance today. You can trust God's timing. You can trust God's provision. You can say, today, God, I'm going to start trusting your process again, God. Today, today, God, I want to start trusting that you're, that you're good, God. That I'm going to start trusting your goodness again today, God. Today, God, I'm going to start trusting your provision again today. This is your chance to turn around and to get back on track. And if you do this, no matter what happens, you can be secure. Knowing that God is with you and that God has a great plan for your life.